Join us at The Hedge for a conversation about engineering, technology, and business. In this episode, Alistair Woodman, Tom Ammon, and Russ White dig into supporting open source. Good evening, Tom, and good evening, Alistair. Here we are at The Hedge having a discussion. Um, my hedgehog is over there. He's curled up in a ball hissing because it's too loud for him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I don't have one of those. <laughs> yeah. I live um, in California. All our hedges are burnt down. So. <laughs> <laughs> too early for that? Maybe? No, I don't no, know. no, no. It's, it's, it's all good. So, Alistair, what are we talking about tonight? We're talking about open source and why open source is so hard and why people don't support open source and why they should just open their, pay, their, their purses in their wallets and just go do it, right? Yeah, well, that's what you asked me to come and talk about. So uh, <laughs> let, let's have that conversation. Yeah, um, so let's start from the beginning. Go right ahead. So, well, first of all, I the... Uh, maybe a little bit of background to, to me personally. I've been working with open source projects now for the last eight years. Um, I'm a little bit unusual in the sense that I'm not a coder by, you know, general activities, but I try to do business development types of things for uh, open source projects. Um, I work entirely pro bono in this area, so... Um, the two projects that I'm working on at the moment, uh, one is the FRR routing project that uh, you're associated with, Ross, and um, is essentially the, the fork of Quagga and uh, a project that are a lot of people are using for uh, open source routing uh, applications. And my other um, uh, project that I'm associated with is actually a foundation for the support of the Erlang and Elixir uh, languages. So uh, that's the uh, Erlang ecosystem, uh, ecosystem Foundation. We just got kicked off this year. And for those of you who are sort of nerds round about, you know, telecom stuff, Erlang itself as a language came out of Ericsson in the 1980s. Um, it's a functional programming language. Um, it's a bit like Haskell, but it's uh, not typed. So um, you see a lot of people um, in the functional programming space arguing about the efficacies of Haskell versus Erlang and type versus non-type safe languages. But um, uh, Erlang's been used uh, for a lot of real-time uh, distributed type of applications uh, WhatsApp was originally programmed in it, and uh, people use it for highly scalable um, communications type of things. Um, I got interested in that about 10 years ago and uh, started hanging out with that community. And uh, we just got around, uh, like literally this year, to starting a foundation um, to support the community and people who use both um, Erlang and Elixir, which is a... Um, sister language that works on the beam, which is the virtual machine that underlies uh, the technology. Um, so, so talk a little bit about what it takes to start a foundation like that. That might be of interest to people to understand a little bit about the work that goes into something like this. Okay, so that is a, um, it, it, it's, it is actually not, quote, too hard, but it's also not trivial. 
Um, and you basically, you have to incorporate yourself as you would any other uh, corporation. So we incorporated in first in California as a uh, C-Corp. And then you basically have to tell both the state of California uh, as well as the IRS that you want to work as a not-for-profit, um, which essentially means that um, you don't own or the, the principals who set up the corporation, um, quote, no longer own it. It becomes a public trust uh, entity. So um, we have to write our bylaws in such a way that, that we're benefiting the community and society in general. Um, you can be um, specific about the things you're doing. So in our case, we're only supporting people who want to learn or use Erlang or Elixir. So it's open to anybody, but it's not open to anybody who wants to come along and try to teach us, teach us Pascal or something like that, right? That's not that's Fortran. not the focus of, or Fortran, Fortran. right? Fortran. Or Fortran. That's, that's Anything one. else will be allowed, but not Pascal or Fortran. But, uh, <laughs> but, but um, so it's an open, uh, we don't preclude people and, and should not be, be precluding people based on race, religion, creed, or any of those other types of things, but it's focused very specifically on that language. Um, so you end up, um, you know, setting up your corporation. You then register with the, the state uh, to make sure that they know who you are. And um, then you go through the process of, you know, applying for a tax ID. And once you've got your tax ID, you then have to write to the IRS and say, please don't tax us on this tax ID. Um, and when it comes around to, you know, filling out our tax forms in a future year, we won't be using the standard corporate uh tax filing information, but the stuff that 501c3s use to report their taxes. So um, it's so you, you as said it's, hard as setting up a company. Yeah, I was going to say, you said it was pretty simple, but it sounds very complex, actually, when you get into it and start talking about all the steps. Uh, not necessarily complex, but there's a lot to get done. It's just, it's just arcane and you need to do it, right? And like anything else, it's, it's probably no worse than filing for your driver's license. But you know, it's not something that, that people regularly do and, you know, you just got to go through the process. So it's been a useful learning experience uh, for me um, to do this. Uh, it's not certainly something that, that I think anybody can do. And there are lots of charitable institutions in the United States. Um, so it's, uh, it's not difficult to do. The question is, why do people want to do it? And and what are their motivations for, for, for doing and how does it work? Right. So, so that actually brings up the question of FR routing and NetDef. So tell us a little bit about NetDef perhaps and, um, you know, where that came from and why that's important in this kind of ecosystem to have this type of organization hanging around doing it. Yeah, so that, th then this does then get us more in to I think the the meat of the conversation that we wanted to talk about as well is you know is how can how can other people help right so if you look at the whole pantheon um, of open source projects out there there are some pretty big ones which I think are well looked after and tended and Linux is uh, sort of the obvious thing at the high end of that um, Mozilla and some of the other projects are you know pretty um, visible. Um, but the, the thing that I think bedevils most 
open source projects is the whole sustainability stuff. So somebody puts code out there and initially it, it, it works as well as it does on the day that you put it out. So it either works very well or it doesn't work very well, but it, it works at that well. But all code then immediately exhibits bit rot over time. So irrespective of how good or bad it was when it starts, it just gets worse from that point on. There's, there's like an exponential fall off in the utility of the code unless people maintain it. Um, so a lot of code, obviously, if you go look on GitHub, has been up there, got posted, people did a bunch of work, and then you look at the you know, Git history and they've not touched it for four or five years and nobody's doing anything and they're basically you know, dead zombie projects. Um, then there's a whole bunch of projects which are not dead and zombied and are actually being worked and tended. So um, people are contributing to those. The, the hard part about it, I think, is to sort of do the institutional back end of projects. So, you know, I've worked with software engineers for 25, 30 years, and it's always the bottle washing, the cleaning the floors, the swabbing the decks, part of the job that that isn't as sexy as writing the brand new feature or doing something, uh, you know, some hero work somewhere else on the project. So um, if you want to stop bit rot, you've got to keep testing and coming up with mechanisms of ensuring that the stuff, you know, works and you can find problems. And I think that's the, the thing that successful open source projects figure out how to do are the ones that continue to be able to run continuous integration systems, figure out problems, deal with, you know, SKUs caused by OSs or anything else that they're trying to work with and keep up to date with the whole of the code that you are dependent upon in other areas and continue to evolve with that. And that sort of becomes a full-time um, activity for a decent proportion of people working on successful projects. So how Failed do you... projects don't do that. So what's a, I mean, we've talked about FRR a little bit. What, um, are there some good, uh, good things that FRR has done that are good examples to the community of how to do this right? So I, I think to a certain extent, everybody realizes that it, one of the inherent things about building routing technology is that you know you're going to interoperate with other routers. So um, from the get-go, there is an understanding that you're going to be talking to other things other than necessarily yourself. Um, so networking engineers are fundamentally used to the fact that the, that they're talking to something else which may not be them. Um, and uh, that in of itself, I think, leads the community to be very sensitive to the idea that that they've got to do a bunch of regression and interworking testing with things that are not them. Um, that often doesn't happen with other projects or uh, doesn't appear so blindingly obvious, right? So, I mean, it sort of, you couldn't really have the conversation with anybody in the community about, well, we just want to talk to ourselves, right? That everybody would dope slap themselves and go, yeah, not so much, right? Go do something else, but not here, right? Um, so you'll certainly don't run into community resistance from the idea that we need to be doing those types of things. 
the, the tricky part is, of course, is actually doing them um, without burning all your resources or community goodwill on right. doing burning those bridges. types of things. Yeah. So, so describe a little bit about what that is. I mean, I know what pieces of it are, but um, since since you're the one talking, we'll let you. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> in routing, what 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 are the pieces we're talking about here? Like, you know, what what processes need to be done? What do those processes look like? Things like that. So, um, I, I think, and this is, you know, probably true of most most modern projects nowadays, they have continuous integration systems with regression um, uh, that essentially anybody who's doing pull requests on the code can check their code to see that it's actually uh, adding more features than it is breaking stuff. Um, The hard part behind the curtain is, of course, making sure that you've got a bunch of infrastructure in place that will actually do that. So uh, we're occasionally spinning up over hundreds of VMs um, to do tests on any particular pull request. Um, We're then running those um, test binaries against um, uh, uh, commercially available and uh, also built by the community test resources which will do regression and uh, figure out test coverage and um, there's a lot of resources both in terms of compute power, um, capital assets, uh, electricity that goes into doing that. I mean we've got um, several rack cages of equipment just to run um, some of these types of things plus the fact that it requires manpower and people to um, keep it all working. So um, it's, it's a full-time job for a couple of people um, to maintain all this infrastructure. So who, if you, who, sorry, who, who pays for all of that? Well, uh, that, so uh, people who it benefits, right? And I think that's the, the, the where we get around to sort of my job is to find out uh, qui bono, right? Who, who actually does benefit this and go, and have that conversation with them about, well, this is what's happening. And if it doesn't get funded and paid for, um, then bit rot will set in. And is that what you really want? So um, in the case of FR routing, the, the, the number of people who are very closely supportive uh, and interested by the project probably falls into the category of maybe 10 to 20 companies who are using the technology um, aggressively. Um, there's a much larger community who probably run it um, as equivalent of enterprise users and some of the inter-exchange carriers use it. And I do have conversations with them about um, supporting the, the project. But there are a couple of pretty large um, startups and now um, some um, very large Fortune 500 companies that are using this in the production environment, and they sort of understand when you talk to them that it's in their interest to be supporting um, the infrastructure and shipping and shipping it as part of their product as well. Indeed, and I, th- and I think that's that's an important piece. Um, so when you go to a company and you talk about the financial side, what what does that conversation look like? Like, what do you talk to them about? And how does that work so that you try to convince people? What, what is your line of reasoning there? So 
the line of reasoning is very much, well, these are all the things that the CI system does, right? You're engineers or you manage engineers and you understand um, what happens. You've got your own regression and your own systems, presumably inside of your own organizations. Most people that I talk to, you know, invest, you know, decent amount of their uh, budget in QA uh, resources, uh, build infrastructure, all those other types of things. So at that level, when you're talking to engineers, you you usually run into people who get um, what you're talking about and they understand why you're asking them. But that's sort of peculiar to the FR routing project and not generally true of all open source projects. Right. Um, so there's so there's something you've said in the past about that you've that you've said in the past about, well, just take your IT budget, figure out how much open source you're using and start thinking through what percentage of that IT budget you should be giving back to the community in terms of financial, right? So what is what does that sound like? I mean, how does that go? Right. Well, so I think that the best way to get into this is to, to use one of, I think, the sort of crassest examples of a piece of technology that everybody uses. So it's not like FR routing, which is um, used by a subset of people quite productively, but it's not like used by everybody. But um, I'll pick the NTP project, the network timing protocol stuff. And um, the the code that, that supports a lot of the network timing stuff is is literally used to synchronize people's business logic across the internet at the moment. And Harlan, the guy who does that is, you know, is a small operation, basically him and some other folks, uh, you know, working out of a garage. And he doesn't have the resources uh, and skill sets to get to all of the people whose technology, um, who uses his technology in some way, shape or form. Uh, so I would be surprised if there is anybody in the Fortune 500, Fortune 5000, you know, even go all the way down to, you know, all the publicly traded companies in the United States, it has to be over 95% of them are dependent upon um, their timing infrastructure and the fact that, you know, we just went back to wintertime and, you know, everybody woke up on Sunday morning and certainly my clocks, watches and PCs were all, you know, all figured this stuff out without worrying about it. And th the challenge for something so crass like that is that you've got this one to like everybody conversation that you'd need to have, right? And in fact, you know, he doesn't, wouldn't really need more than, you know, probably um, a thousandth of a, of a cent from everybody who was benefiting from this uh, to be able to run his operation properly and keep everything going. But there's no mechanism of, of providing that level of, of money and flow. So he basically gets supported by a couple of people in the internet community and people who are in the know about what he does. But you have all this benefit for industry and there is no clear way by which they know where or how they should be giving back. And many of them don't even know. So to use sort of two wonkish um, economic, you know, one-on-one type of things, you have a tragedy of the commons um, 
economic thing or free rider issues uh, going on in terms of the fact that people are getting to benefit and using the technology, but they're not really giving back. Um, and our project FRR is nowhere near out there on the extreme, but you know, the other end of the spectrum is say Linux itself, which everybody has understood needs to get funded. And that is actually looked after by business and industry who care about it. But there's this huge long tail going out there towards some of these other projects, which were just not being looked after. And I think the classic example of this is, you know, Heartbleed and, you know, the SSL library stuff. Because when that happened, everyone went, oh, shit, we need to fix this. And then that got moved under the Linux Foundation and got fixed. But that's, that's a reactive response afterwards. And it was only driven, of course, by huge security scares. Um, if something's not viewed as histor uh, you know secure, uh, secure relevant, but is actually useful for everybody in their daily life, there's no mechanism whereby people sort of really know how to you know how to benefit people. Well, this is um, where like Linux Foundation and NetDep and these other companies come in, right? Or these 503Cs come in is trying to make those connections. Correct, and I think they they. And the connections, I think, have been made really well for the really obviously visible projects. And they're not being made well at all for the uh, important but not well understood projects. And FRR sort of sits somewhere in the middle of those types of things. And But were, for instance, I not to be doing the business development job and going around with a tin cup and my monkey in a you know, uh, an, a organ grinder. an organ grinder <laughs> costume, um, it wouldn't be being supported either, right? So um, part of the challenge here is, is, and I think, you know, this was the conversation you and I had before, Russ, is that if people really cared about this, um, some of the folks who are working in the industry would get together and figure out how we should, you know, make it more visible to corporations and folks i mean my ideal view of this is that you know cios and and cfos should be asking themselves questions about how much utility they're getting and and interestingly enough those questions sort of happening at the moment in the valley round about affordable housing so we've seen announcements over the last week or so about you know apple investing in affordable housing because they figured out that you know, if the infrastructure, the housing infrastructure around Silicon Valley doesn't work, they've got a problem. Well, similar types of things sort of happening at a much smaller scale. We don't need the $2 billion, but, um, but there but are... You wouldn't, but you wouldn't mind it. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, if anybody offers, wants to offer me $2 billion, I will accept. But, <laughs> right? Uh, so I have a question about just about community involvement and those who contribute to open source. So say an organization is kind of on the edge of deciding whether or not they want to contribute. What are some things, like how would you pitch it to them? What, what benefits come to an organization that supports open source? Well, so, uh, and let me, let's make sure we're not bashing organizations too heavily at the moment, right? So many, uh, many organizations and entities do actually support open source by allowing their employees to work on the projects, fix bugs, ask things. So they, they provide um, 
sweat equity um, or, you know, hobby project time or allow their employees, they don't, you know, veto their employees doing stuff either on the side or posting things uh, as part of their work job to fix code. Um, And and not vetoing, by the way, is almost as big of a deal a lot of times for a lot of people as encouraging them, right? I mean, people don't realize, I, I get this all the time. I would like to go write a book. I would like to work in open source. And then they go talk to their manager. And their manager's like, well, you got to go through legal and you got to do this. And you're just like, I'm just not even going to spend the time. I'm just not even going to bother with that. And so making it permissionless is a huge deal, I think, for a lot of people. And I think and that's, so, and that's yeah. where, where I was going with my question. I'm defining support broadly, including all those things you, can, you just talked about, as well as the you know, financial support. Like what, yes, what are the, and, and, Right. So you, you need, and again, this would be back to the sort of, um, you know, making it clear to corporate executives what, what act, so, so A, thank them for the things that they are doing, which is usually, you know, allowing their employees to do stuff, but many of their employees do actually post under their private GitHub addresses, right? And, um, because they they're usually doing this on projects that are not necessarily directly associated with work, so that it's actually their personal hobby time. Um, as soon as it starts to get into a company's sort of um, real business thing, you do run into exactly the same problems that Russ has talked about, which is some companies then put full time employees on things and say you're our anointed you know, maintainer for, you know, the Linux kernel, and everybody understands why that's good. But there's a whole bunch of other types of things that it's like, well, you know, I just want to go fix something over here on this project. Is it okay if I release these fixes under that community's um, rules? And the answer is like, uh, it's too hard for us to figure out or don't know how that would work or those types of things. And I think that's where that's where sort of making those things to be more aware to people um, is important. And then I think you one finds that individual projects do sometimes need money and resources for paying bills. So, you know, using, you know, resources on the internet, Amazon is actually quite supportive of some projects running things. There are other projects that will allow 501c3s to do things at lower or no cost. And that was one of the reasons that we set up, or I'm involved in the two 501c3s that I am, is that there you do get some you know, benefits for being a not-for-profit, but that's a general not-for-profit benefit thing. It's not because you know, you're working in the software space per se. And, yeah. But there are things that do actually call, you know, create cost. And yeah. those things also sort of need to be funded. So if you look at the total cost that humanity and to a certain extent, certainly corporate companies have saved by having open source, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillion. If you go back to thinking about the things that we used to pay money for in the past, um, you know, postscript drivers for your printers, you know, all those types of things that we used to have to pay, you know, 99 bucks for in the past that you now get for free all that has mostly been eradicated by the fact that ultimately meant much of this stuff got turned into open source but you there's still a cost left to managing this stuff so it's free but it's not 
costless. And that's the that's the problem that one runs into in this particular area is how do you solve that problem? Right. So and even, even organizing the community is a cost, by the way. It's not just the cost fit like the monetary cost, but the time it takes for some people. Somebody's got to sit down and figure out a CI system and figure out a pull request process and figure out like NFR routing. Um, if you work for company A and you do a PR, uh, the way FR routing is set up is you can't somebody from that same company cannot actually merge that code. So somebody had to sit down and figure that out. And there's lint and there's documentation and there's, I don't know, there's all this stuff that's got to be done and somebody has to do it. So that's another thing is that even if you can't code, doesn't mean you can't help with those other things in those communities. And you can take the burden off the people who can code by helping them set these processes up and understand how to do these processes and stuff like that. So I think there's value in all those things as well. Oh, uh, there is. And as I said, I, I don't think that the issue really is not, um, so as specifically as far as FR routing is concerned, uh, as usually when I can find the executives in organizations and get to talk to them, we usually, they understand that they should be helping and contributing, and they do. But the, as I said, the, the 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 subset of people who should be caring about this maybe maybe really a hundred companies, and I can get to meet many of them um, at the trade shows and events that I'm that I go to, um, and through the community of contacts like you, Ross, and others, they they put me in touch with people, and. You know, we have a you know two degrees of freedom connectivity throughout the industry, but there's a whole bunch of other projects that that are valuable but have much broader distribution utility things where this model no longer works, right? And the NTP example that I quoted earlier is the classic example for that, right? And there are some other pretty good examples of projects which. You know, some level, there the, the needs to be a mechanism where people can either be can understand that they're involved in a tragedy of the commons situation or that they're actually being free riders and they should be sort of, to a certain extent, guilted into, uh, you know, coming up with mechanisms. And if we could figure out a way of making it relatively easy for companies like, you know, CFOs and CIOs to contribute, I think they would. So I don't I've, have a solution to that problem, but I, I think that that's what needs to happen. Something I've, I've observed as a consumer of open source for many years, I, I think I, I'm trying to think of a time when I was solicited to help with something that I had been, a project that I had benefited from. I can't think of a single time that somebody reached out to me and said, hey, you, uh, you file a bug and we fixed it for you. Hey, how, how about you help? I mean, is there, how, do you, how do you enlist the support of people? Do you just sort of expect that people will get it and kind of figure out that they should be, should be um, giving their support? Or how, how, do you, how do you get the support? Well, I think that that works in for like retail products, uh, projects, people actually will do PayPal stuff, right? So... You know, that's the way that they typically solicit nowadays is that they put their hand up through that. And, you know, it, depending on how annoying it is or whatever it is, some percentage of people, you know, sign up. So it's a bit like, you know, when NPR does their fundraising stuff, right? They try to guilt people into 
signing up and that works. The, the thing where I think things sort of don't really work is like in the company space, right? Where corporations are really benefiting from this. Um, you end up with these situations inside the organization where the people who are using the code know that they're dependent upon it. But the CIO, the CFO, the management guys don't realize what's going on. They don't even possibly know that the code is being used inside of their organization. And they might actually want to help if they knew, but they don't know. And the people who are using the code, they know how to buy things inside of companies because you can sort of raise a PO, but donating money right? It's like a different concepty thing, right? And it, it starts to get ugly and tortuous and, and then people usually give up because, you know, they don't know how to deal with that part of the process. Well, and again, I, I, to, to, to me, support means more than money. Like I, you know, I, I have zero, zero influence over how much money my, my corporation donates. But, but to me, like, how do you, how do you build the community? How do you get people to come in to contribute to the code base and, and to make it, make it work. And, and you raise a, so that is an interesting question, right? And people will tend to gravitate to the situation. In fact, one of the benefits of the projects is that not everybody who's benefiting from it needs to do the work, right? In fact, sometimes it's a, you know, there are better skills for people to do, to not be doing it there. You know, this is the classic economic you know, benefit that Adam Smith uh, recognized is that you're, you have utility by doing something that you're good at and leaving somebody else to do the thing that they're good at. So you don't want everybody who's actually using it to come and help because the, the skills that they have may not be useful for the actual coding stuff, right? So sometimes it really is something that you want some people to come and help, but you want other people to just stand back and and say thank you very much is this right and it could be as much as you know just patting people on the back and thanking them it could be you know handing out t-shirts it could be you know to inviting them to go do stuff paying their expenses to take part in other types of things there's lots of things that you could do but j just having everybody who actually depends on it turn up and trying to you know, polish the code is probably not the most efficient use of everybody's resources here. So sometimes money, and again, I'm not saying that everybody should only pay money, but there's this value proposition between sometimes people turning up with people, sometimes people, you know, standing up and applauding it, right? Just recognition is highly useful for certain projects, but sometimes cash is also useful. And, and we don't have healthy balances with many of the projects out there. And so I'm not speaking now from an FR routing perspective, I'm speaking for the you know generic solution of all the open source projects out there. There are a bunch of them that you know not doing as well as they ought to do. And if they had just a little bit more cash, they would probably be in a much better shape. And um, you know, things would be more people would potentially gravitate to some of those communities and it wouldn't be you know, they weren't suffering from quite as much bit rot as they do. So large companies know when they need to go fix something, they tend to throw bodies at it, and they do. And that's been quite successful in for many projects. 
But I, I think there's this middle ground out into long tail territory where that doesn't work very well. All right. And I think Excellent. it's that area that I sort of tend to look at and say, well, is there anything the industry could do to, to do a better job in that space? Yeah, good. So um, let's wrap it up there. Thanks, Alistair, for coming on um, and talking about this. I think this is a really important topic, and maybe we'll have you back on in the future and try to talk about this some more and figure out maybe we could brainstorm a little bit about ideas and um, talk about other things that we could do and maybe even talk about the FR routing project a little more specifically in the future or whatever. I don't know. There's, there's lots of other topics in the open source and in this space of communities and trying to build the tools and stuff that go with networking. So it was great having you on, though. So, Alistair, you don't blog, right, or anything like that? You're just on LinkedIn? No, you're telling me I should. So I was uh, I was sort of going to ask you the question. So anybody listening to this is presumably going to get in touch with you, Tom, or you, Russ, and say they want to get involved. So maybe I start need to start doing something like blogging. I've always thought that there was – enough people blogging on the planet that I didn't need to get involved. Well, but, no, but I mean, even if they can get in touch with you through LinkedIn or, or through... Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, uh, people can get in touch with me certainly through LinkedIn if they want to, you know, get engaged uh, formally. And if, if anybody does have an idea about how to sort of up the game on this, I would be willing to spend quite a bit of time to try and help generally. I mean, I think this is a... The, the ITF... I know has thought about some of these things. I've talked to folks there about what would we do about some of the network critical projects and how we might do stuff in that area. So, um, so if anybody's specifically interested in that space, the networking in general, I think we, I know other people who would want to get involved from both companies and industry. Um, um, and vehicles. also, you you have two five zero three one C. So, what are those websites so that people can go to those? Or you're involved okay. with two five zero three one Cs? Yeah. So the um, the URL for NetDef is n e t d e f dot org, and the one for the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation is e r l um, e f dot o r g. Okay, great. And Tom, you're just on LinkedIn. You're not blogging yet, but you're on Twitter. What is your Twitter account? Uh, at Tom Ammon, and I have like five drafts of blog posts, so it's probably yeah, about time. But yeah, probably yeah. about time. All right. Excellent. So, so they're going to talk to you, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and um, I'm Russ White. You can always find me at Routing Geek on Twitter, although I don't log into Twitter, so don't DM me there or PM me there. PM me on LinkedIn or email me or something or get in touch with me through rule11.tech or I don't know, some other place. Um, I just don't really log into social media a whole lot other than LinkedIn. I check once a day or something, but uh, always feel free to email me or ch check out uh, rule11.tech. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Thanks, Alistair, for coming on, and thanks, Tom, for joining me as co-host tonight. Thank you for joining us. You can find The Hedge at rule11.tech.